0: Morning. Once again, good to be with you. I am traumatized by the time that I was up here, and I was adjusting uh, one of these stands, and it just fell apart. And then uh, Annette went to go get me another one. The same thing happened again. And so, like, this one's a little more wobbly than I like it, so just pray (laughs) that nothing happens. we, uh, if if you're new here, glad you're visiting. We are in Matthew chapter seven. We're finishing sermon on the mount today. And um, if you're a, if you're a Bible reader, if you know you read your Bible regularly, you read bits of it every day or, or you know every week pretty regularly. If um, if you've read through the whole Bible at some point in your life, which I think every Christian should aim to do, that is a very important thing to do because the Bible is how God speaks to us most clearly. But As I was saying, if you're a Bible reader, you'll notice a certain impression people get about Jesus, an impression of people who are not Bible readers. Uh, They have about Jesus that just doesn't really line up with what we see presented in the Bible, which is that Jesus is kind of like a hippie. Like, he's just a very peaceful, all love, good vibes kind of guy, and uh (laughs) Jesus is gentle at times, but when you actually look at him in the Bible, you see he doesn't coddle anyone when it comes to the truth. Uh, Jesus is not willing to soften the truth to make it e- <laughs> whoa, to make it easier for people. That was my wife. Uh, she's trying to distract me. It's not going to work. Uh, Okay, it worked a little bit. Now Jesus is not willing to soften the truth for people in order to uh, make it easier for them to accept it. Uh, he has compassion, for sure. He absolutely has compassion. That's where we see his gentleness really shine through. But he doesn't really care about being offensive and like not just in the things that he teaches. He teaches on things that offend people in their values and the things that they want when he talks about hell, when he talks about sex, when he talks about money, when he talks about forgiveness. Like, those are all things that people will find offensive. But then, just even like, in a personal way, he will call people out in offensive ways. He'll say, uh, you, know, you all are children of Satan. Uh, he calls Peter Satan. Uh, that's not a great thing to be called. Uh, he calls a woman a dog one time. And as w- in what we're reading today, uh, you, you just see it so clearly, Jesus is not afraid even of offending people who have a good impression of him. People who like him, who are interested in his message, in his ministry, who are interested in what he's saying, and he's not going to, uh, to soften the truth for them in order to like, win them fully onto his side. Uh, he's not afraid of offending people, uh, he, he, in it, not in an unnecessarily offensive way, but just in a way that, like, you, you absolutely need this truth that I'm giving you, and it may hurt a little bit to hear it, but it's just that important. So look at this verse 21. Jesus says, "'Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven.'" On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There's a sermon uh, preached by a guy named Paul Washer a number of years ago where he was in this scripture. And uh, it was sort of a well-known sermon at the time, so maybe you're familiar with it. Uh, I think on YouTube it's like the shocking youth message poll. I, like, you can find it. Um, but he was preaching from this scripture, and I think it's a youth conference. I think it was probably in Texas and he's preaching and he's going over this and he's saying you know there there are people who think that they're christians and and they're not they just don't get it and all these uh, you know kids start clapping going like yeah you tell them paul washer you tell them jesus you know you tell all those fake christians up there in new jersey yeehaw and uh, and and paul washer yells at them he says stop clapping And he goes, I'm talking about you. And he preaches the rest of the sermon, pointing his finger out at the crowd. It's, you should watch it. Um, Pointing his finger at these, you know, teenage, Christian, Texan, homeschool kids, probably. And uh, I don't know if they were, but Paul Washer, like Jesus, is not afraid of offending his listeners. I do think he's justified in calling them out, even in a little bit of an abrasive way, because it's exactly what Jesus is trying to address. Like, they miss the whole thing. Uh, Jesus is trying to make us aware that there are people who think they're in the kingdom of God, and they're not. There are people who have been deluded into thinking they are forgiven and saved and have the hope of eternal life, but they don't. Where, where does that delusion come from? Partly, it comes from people who do soften the truth and are afraid of saying anything that's gonna rub someone the wrong way or feel abrasive or feel uncomfortable. And what can happen when, with like the best of intentions, you want someone to know about God's love for them and Jesus. You want them to know it. You, you want so badly for them to understand What you can end up doing is presenting uh, a picture of salvation and a picture of Jesus that's easier for them to embrace. There's less difficulty in it, but in what you've just done, you've actually obscured who Jesus is and you've obscured salvation. I forget who said this, and I always think it's Jen Wilkin, and maybe it is, but so just pretend that that's who said it. She's, she was talking about women's conferences and ha, ha, how so many uh, women's conferences, like the point of the whole conference is how amazing women are. And uh, that, you know, the, the tagline verse on so many of them is I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And she said, she said, not me, she said, if, uh, like if, we, if you really are that amazing, if you're as amazing as these conferences are designed to tell you you are, what do you need Jesus for anyways? christian conferences should tell you christian truth that you're a sinner and you need a savior and that savior is jesus like wild idea they should be about christ they should be about how amazing and worthy and good he is that's this i want people to like jesus and so i'm going to tell them things that they like to hear and i'm going to keep from them or vaguely infer things that are uncomfortable to hear, just so it makes it easier for them to accept it. This is a really big deal. If there are people, and Jesus says there are, if there are people who are going to identify Jesus as their Lord, but who he says will be turned away at the end, how can we know? How can I know if that's something that Jesus is gonna say to me? One of, the best, uh, one of the best ways that I'm aware of to get an idea about this, just to tell if I'm on the right track or not, um, if this is like a glaringly big problem in my life and my faith, A uh, really simple thought exercise that can illuminate this for you. And uh, the thought exercise is this, like just say that you died today and, um, you know, choked on some food or something. You died, and then you go to the gates of heaven, and God is there, and he says, why should I let you in? It's just a thought experiment. It's not at all how it works, but imagine God asking you that question. How would you answer? What would you say? Alistair Begg is a, a pastor, I think in the Midwest, I think in like Illinois or something, but it's weird because he has a Scottish accent, which is awesome to listen to. And if you ever just flip through on the radio, you've probably heard him. uh, Truth for Life Radio, uh, one of his ministries, and um, one of my favorite preachers. But he says if, if your answer to that question, why should I be let into heaven, if you start to answer that question in the first person, you've got Jesus wrong and you've got the gospel wrong. If you start answering, well, God, Here's why you should let me in. Uh, I went to church. I prayed the prayer for salvation. I read the Bible. I agree with what the Bible teaches. I tried to be a good person. I I followed Jesus' example. When you start answering in the first person, what that reveals about where your confidence is for your salvation. Your confidence for your salvation is in yourself. I did all the right things. I believe the right things. I measured up. I did what I was supposed to do. I did it. Your confidence is in yourself. And it sounds an awful lot like what the people Jesus is describing in Matthew seven are saying. You know, did, did, not we, uh, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Didn't I do this? Didn't I do this? Didn't I do all the right things? It's all about you and what you've done. If you understand Jesus, if you understand the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the way that you answer that question is in the third person. Why should I be led into heaven? It's because of Jesus. It's because of what Jesus did for me. Because Jesus went to the cross for me. Because of his grace, his mercy, all my confidence for my salvation is in Jesus, it's not in myself. The question Matthew seven makes you wrestle with, and it will, do you really know Jesus? Or do you only know the version of Jesus that you have invented in your own mind? Or maybe like you're just visiting today and you're not a Christian at all and you don't know Jesus at all. And that's great if you're here um, because now you know that's the most important thing to to know who Jesus is. That's where you've got to to, to pursue your faith and finding out who Jesus is. That's what Jesus says the problem is. He says, I never knew you. It's like we didn't have a relationship. You didn't know who I was. It's not enough that you call Jesus Lord and that you go to church and you do Christian things. You remember the movie Talladega Nights, the Will Ferrell movie? You remember it, raise your hand. Sinners, absolute heathens. Uh, I saw it too. Uh, There's a scene in that movie where Will Ferrell's character is praying before a meal and he's praying to sweet baby Jesus. And his character's father in law is saying, you know, he was a man, he had a beard, and he goes, Well, I like the baby version the best. And then John C. Riley, his friend, chimes in and he goes, I like to picture my Jesus in a tuxedo shirt because it says, I want to be formal, but I'm here at a party. And as ridiculous as that sounds, it's not far off from how people unironically treat Jesus. Uh, people are out here making up their own versions of Jesus based around their own preferences. You know, well, m- I could never worship a God who would do this or say that. Like, the, the God that I, wor- like, my Jesus says this. My Jesus thinks this. Uh, my-, my Jesus would never say that. And it's just so insane, because you can't do that with anyone and we know it's insane to do it with anyone. You just take anyone, just take um, uh, Noah Marshall, for example, who just got married uh, last weekend. Congratulations, Noah. I don't think he's here today, he shouldn't be. Um, but he's, he's a real person who actually exists. So he's got his own life, his own life experiences, uh, his own thoughts about things and his own values. And like, if you go talk to him, or if you talk to people who know him, you can find out those things about him. And you should, he's a really nice guy. Um, But he's married now, ladies, so keep a respectful distance. Uh, The point is, he's a real person who actually exists and you can discover things about him. What you can't do is make up things about him. I'm sure he wouldn't like that. I'm sure Jesus doesn't like it when we do it about him. Like God is real. He exists. Jesus is real. God's a trinity. There's one God in three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God, and through God's word, he tells us about himself. You can discover who God is. You can't change who he is to fit your preferences. When when you do that, when you you know, ignore some of the things God says that you, you don't agree with or you don't like to hear, things that he says about hell, things that he says about sex or about money or about humility or forgiving people, whatever it is. You, you don't like those things, and so you kind of uh, ignore or obscure those, and then maybe you add some things into him. Uh, you put meaning into his words that were never originally in the words that he spoke. When, when you start doing that, You've not discovered who Jesus is. You've created your own version of Jesus that's just not real. In fact, you've created your own God, which is what we call an idol. And you're calling your idol Jesus, but it doesn't make it Jesus. It doesn't make it the real Jesus. Psalm 115 says this about idols. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. An idol is something that is made by human hands, by a human mind, it's a human work. And because you're the one who's making it, you can make it be however you want it to be. You can fit it to to whatever image that you'd like it to be in. Just like in Talladega Nights, you can create your own version of God however you prefer. The problem is it's just not real. Doesn't speak, doesn't hear, doesn't see. And most importantly, your invented and edited version of Jesus. That Jesus, that thing that you're calling Jesus, doesn't save. I love this Tim Keller quote where he says, if you worship a God who never disagrees with you, uh, you're just worshiping an idealized version of yourself. It's like if you've got a relationship with a God who just agrees with you about everything, fits your preferences entirely. You've made up a God who is in your own image how, how you want him to be, something that's convenient for you. If you, follow, if you think you follow Jesus and Jesus never tells you no about anything, you're not really following Jesus. The idols that we make, even if you give your idol the name of Jesus, what they end up doing is they allow us to practice lawlessness. And that's what Jesus says, like, oh, I did all these things in your name, I'm calling you Lord, but, but he goes, you're a worker of lawlessness. You thought you had permission to do all these things, I never gave you permission for it. Like, we, we have an agenda when we're making idols, and the, the agenda is this, this thing is going to let me do what I want and live how I want to live. And we'd much rather have that. It, it feels much better to us to have that than to follow Jesus, which means you know, publicly identifying ourselves with something that could make us pretty unpopular. Like publicly following Jesus, identifying with him uh, could, could earn us dislike, mockery, loss of friendships, all things that Jesus says you will experience if you're actually following me. So we don't, that's not, it that doesn't feel good, good to us. We don't naturally want to, to sacrifice or deny ourselves for the sake of following Jesus. We, we don't want to do what he says uh, about forgiveness. We don't. We want to punish. We want to make people work for it. We, we want to hold it over their heads. We don't want to be sober-minded. We, we want to get drunk. We don't want to be humble and serve. We want to Be selfish and lazy and be served. And so you start changing things about Jesus that lets you get what you want. Don't do it. Don't do it. Jesus is clear. There are people who are sitting in the church, going to Bible study, reading their Bible. They think they're following him as their Lord, but they're deluded. They think they know him, but they only know the version of him that they've made up. They call him Lord. They don't treat him as Lord. They don't treat him as the highest authority in their lives. Why should I let you into heaven? I I went to church. I read the Bible. I uh, tried to be a good person. I prayed the prayer. It's not it. You need to know who Jesus really is. You need to discover who Jesus really is. Jesus continues in verse 24. He says this Everyone who says these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. As I said, Jesus is real. He actually exists. You have to discover who he is and part of discovering who Jesus is, is hearing his words. Like, listening to his words, and, and not only listening to the parts that you like or the parts that are easy for you to hear, but listening to his whole word, everything that he says. I, I included it in the list of things that, like, you should not put your confidence in for salvation, that I read the Bible, and I stand by that. That's true. It's not because you read the Bible. It's, it's because of Jesus, but that doesn't mean reading the Bible is unimportant. The Bible is the best way we have to reliably hear God's word, the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the Bible as we read it and we pray and we we ask for understanding. The Holy Spirit illuminates God's truth to us and makes it come alive to us, and we start to understand things. And every you know, the Holy Spirit's going to speak to us differently through that book, but it's all through God's Word. And if if you know you feel like uh, you're, you're too intimidated to read the Bible or you don't know where to start or you've tried and you've had trouble with it, I mean. Let us know about it. That's something that we would absolutely love to help you with. And, and if you don't have your own Bible, we have Bibles that are in the back and they're, they're free for you at the Connect desk. Um, they're a gift for you. We'd love for you to have it, love for you to read it. Uh, we have little bookmarks that give you like a very quick and easy way to start applying uh, an, an understanding to the Bible and, and some good questions to ask as you read through it. So, so let us know. If, uh, if, if this is something that you've struggled with, we'd love to help you um, grow in reading the Bible. Isaiah 55 says something incredible about God's word. Look at this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. That God's word has a purpose. It's doing something. Every time that you read God's word, it's doing something. When you look at the metaphors in the verse that, that God's word, it's, it's like the rain and the snow melt that come down and water the earth. And, and what does it do? Makes the earth burst with life. God's word does the same thing. It, it doesn't do nothing. It doesn't return back empty. It goes and it produces life. It produces a harvest of good things. Every time you open God's word and receive it, it's going to do something. But it's not just hearing God's word. Remember what Jesus said. It, it's not just those who hear these words of mine, but, but the one who does them and actually puts them into practice. We get the same thing from James in in, uh, the letter of James in chapter 1 in the New Testament. He says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He's telling us the same thing that we get from Isaiah. We are to receive with meekness the implanted what? The implanted word, which does something. There's a purpose to it. It's able to save your souls. This word is about the, the salvation that we have in Jesus. What happens is when you receive that implanted word, it saves you and it also changes you. Remember this old illustration that's always stuck with me um, and and maybe be helpful for you, but like, so you can take a pig uh, out of the mud and you can wash it off and make it clean and you have, you know, nice, clean, shiny pig, which I'm sure everyone's done. Um, But if you leave the pig alone, it's gonna go back to the mud because that's the nature of the pig. It loves the mud. Jesus doesn't just wash you off and make you clean. That's not all that he's doing. What Jesus does is he transforms you. He changes your nature. It's more like if you took a pig and changed it into a cat because the nature of the cat is totally different. It it hates the mud. It's not gonna go in it. They like to keep themselves clean. Jesus changes your nature. He changes who you are. So, so you're, the, the salvation that he puts in you, the salvation that you receive from this implanted word about Jesus, it becomes something that brings changes to your life. And the, you're gonna see what those changes are. And, and the, the way that it changes your nature is you're not just a hearer of God's word, you're a doer of God's word. So God's word tells you to forgive, and because you've received God's word about forgiveness in Jesus, you understand that Jesus went to the cross to forgive you while you were still a sinner, that he, he pays your debt, he doesn't ask you to pay for it, he doesn't ask you to earn it, he doesn't punish you, he doesn't hold it over your head, he freely forgives you as a gift. And because that word has been implanted in you, you now become someone whose nature's changed and you go and forgive in the way that you've been forgiven. Your nature's changed. You become a doer of God's word. God's word tells you to be generous and because you've received God's word about uh, his generosity for you in Jesus, that although Jesus was sitting on a throne in glory in heaven, he abandoned that And he made himself poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You could receive the riches of his grace. You could receive the promise of eternal life. He's given you so much because you've received that word. Changes your nature. I have to go be generous. I have to give away what I have in in order to enrich the people around me. God's word accomplishes his purpose when it is implanted in you through your faith in Jesus. When you put your your trust all the way in him, it's like we talked about how you answer the question. When you put all your trust for salvation in him, none of it in yourself, and you understand everything that you're receiving from him, changes you so that now there's, there's nothing in God's word that he would say to you that you could read in his word and you would say, no, God, I'm not gonna listen to you about this. I don't care what you say, I'm not gonna do it. Now, I don't mean to say that it becomes easy. It, It is difficult and there may be things that you get stuck on and you get stuck in patterns but the new nature that you have and the desire of that new nature is, I want to listen to you, God. I want to be a doer of your word. I want to fix this thing in my life. You're not gonna, you're not gonna hide it, defend it, justify it, and, and try and change God to be the way that you want him to be. You've discovered who he is, and, and because of how good he is and how important he is to you and, and just everything that he's given you, you say, I, I want to I be a doer of your word. I trust you. When you do that, if you go back to the verses in Matthew seven, um, that is when you give your life a solid foundation, a solid rock to stand on that, that never shifts, never changes. The line from the hymn, and the hymn is, um, my, my hope is built on nothing lost, that, that hymn, the line goes, uh, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Your foundation is solid because God's word doesn't change. God doesn't change. It's not like God tells you something and then you, you start doing it and then later God tells you, actually, I don't want you to do that anymore. I want you to do this. Uh, or actually, that's not okay anymore. This is the thing that's okay now. Like It, it doesn't change. Across cultures and across time, right, God's word doesn't change. He doesn't change. The love for you doesn't change. The good news of salvation in Jesus doesn't change. When the foundation of your life is built on values and principles and ideas that are subject to change, that's a weak foundation that doesn't hold up. And if what that foundation is for you is, you know, basically aligning with the majority opinion on, on values and principles and ideas, like the majority opinion of the culture that you're in, what you have to understand is that thing constantly changes. And it changes quickly. And, and I think that every generation does this, but, you know, so modern people, modern generation, one of the things they love to do is condemn all past generations for all the ways that their ideas were wrong and their values were wrong and their principles were wrong and we're so enlightened now and we're the ones who have it right. They they love to do that, um, but when you participate in that, all that means is you're acknowledging there's there's a future where you are going to be condemned in a similar way, because these things change. Like if you if you if you try to keep up with majority opinions. Uh, every few years, like if this is the way that you're gonna live, this is the foundation of your life, every few years you're going to end up condemning a past version of yourself. You know, just a few years ago, you're gonna end up condemning that past version of yourself and so even you today, thinking you've, you're all enlightened and you've got it all right, there's a, a, a time coming in your future where you're gonna condemn the yourself of today. If you listen God's Word, listen to what He says, you're, you're going to understand God will condemn every version of you whose life is not founded in Christ. It's not built on the foundation of Jesus. The storm that Jesus uses in the verses here, that's not a metaphor for difficulties in your life. Uh, that is a metaphor about death you know, the storm came and it beats and, and the, the house falls and great was the fall of it. This directly following what he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Are you building your life on a solid foundation that is going to last? Are you building your life on knowing Jesus, on discovering who he really is and putting your faith in who you discover him to be. Not adjusting him to to fit your preferences, to make your life more convenient. That's what Jesus wants from you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to discover who he is. Final verses in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes mentioned this a, a bunch of times throughout this sermon series that, you know, Jesus is so unique. Uh, when, when I teach or, or anyone else teaches who's not a cult leader, uh, the, the way that we do our teaching is here's what God's word says. Here, look, you can see it for yourself. This, this is what God's word says. Uh, you know, a cult leader will be like, you know, well, here's, here's what I say. I mean, that's what Jesus does. Jesus goes, here, everyone, listen, listen to what I have to say. He puts his own word at the same level of authority as God's word, his recognized word in, in the scripture of their day. He puts his word at the same level of authority. And that's because he's always presenting himself as the king of God's kingdom, as the savior who brings people into the kingdom. If you look in God's word to discover who Jesus is, that's who you're going to find. Jesus says, I'm the king. Jesus says, I am the savior. What does it mean that Jesus is the king? It means that he is the Lord. He is the one, the the creator of the universe. He's he's the ultimate authority in, in our lives. And our role is to submit to his will and trust that he knows what's best for us, to trust that he has our, our best interests in mind. It's not to say no to him, but to say, I trust you, your will be done. But he's not just a he's not just a king, he's not just an authority, he's also the savior who loves us. He's he's the one who, while you're a sinner, while you are unable to do anything with the, the black marks that you carry around on your soul where you know I'm a sinner, you know I've got guilt, you know the regrets that you have, you know the shame that's buried deep. He says, I see all that and I still love you anyways. I still want you. He went to the cross to take your place so that he could pay the debt for your sin which is his own life. He could forgive you. He could set you free. He could make you clean, make you new. He rises from the grave. He defeats death. He gives you the hope of eternal life. Your Lord, your King, the one that you follow is one who is sovereign even over death. So there's nothing to fear in death because he promises you eternal life with him. I was at a wedding last weekend. No, it a wedding. And I was talking with a guy who I hadn't seen in uh, a very long time. He was a youth leader of mine when I was in middle school. And uh, he's been on kind of a winding path for uh, his relationship with God and just, just where he's at and, and what he thinks. And so, like, we met, and he knows I'm a pastor now, and, uh, and like, he just jumped straight into it. He wanted to talk about Jesus, which was great. And where he's at now, he, he started telling me, You know, I believe in God. Um, I don't believe Jesus is God, I don't believe Jesus is Savior. Uh, I just think Jesus is a really great teacher. There's a lot of value in, in his teachings and the things that he uh, that he says, and it was a good conversation. I appreciated it. Uh, one of the things that was a factor in like where he's at now and how winding it's been is he grew up in church. In like his experience, he didn't think he was allowed to uh, to raise any doubts or ask questions. And that you just need to uh, don't ask that. Just believe, and uh, and and I you know, sympathize with him. Like, I don't think that's right. I think that you should be able to work through your doubts and ask questions. And like, this is something that people always bring up. Uh, y- you always hear this in people who are like walking away from the church and they'll be like, well, you know, the church never talks about this. You know, the church, they never talk about this thing. Uh, you know, they, they never talk about the problem of suffering and evil or, or they, they never talk about uh, violence in the Bible or all these things. And I'm just going, yes, they Yes, we do. Like, you're, you're pretending like the whole church has their head buried in the sand, and you're the brave one who's now coming out and asking hard questions that no one's had the courage to deal with. There's 2,000 years of church history in which very intelligent people have written entire books on the things that you're talking about. But, I do understand that in some churches, and some experiences, doubts are not encouraged or addressed, they are suppressed. And I don't think that's a good thing because I do think God is able to handle our doubts and our questions. I think that you can arrive at uh, satisfying and reasonable answers for why you believe the things that you know, the Bible asks you, ask you to believe. I think you can get there. So anyways, that's a little bit of an aside. Um, it was a good conversation. Uh, I offered a counterpoint to him where he just goes, you know, I, I think there's a lot of value in the things Jesus is teaching, um, but he's not savior, he's not God. And, and I just told him, I don't see that at all when I read the Bible. Because when I read the Bible, all of Jesus' teaching, not some of it, all of Jesus' teaching appeals to his role as savior, son of God, king, for why his teaching has authority, why anyone should listen to what he has to say. All of it appeals to who he is. He, and the crowds know that. He's not teaching like anyone else, not any other rabbi. He's teaching as one who has authority, as if he is the voice of God himself, right? If I said to anyone, you know, here's how you should live, here's what you should do, um, but just know that on the, the last day of judgment, there will be many who say to me, Ryan Dinos, Lord, Lord, didn't we do everything you asked us to do? And I will say to you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Like, I can't say that. That's nuts. Jesus says that. He doesn't give you the option to just think, wow, he's a good teacher. He's, he's a good person. He doesn't give you that. Like, the Bible doesn't give you that option. He's either crazy or a liar and a manipulator, or He is what He tells you He is. He is the Son of God. He is the King. He is the Savior. Don't just make up your own thoughts about Jesus. Go and discover who He really is. Don't don't shut down your own doubts and questions. You should work through those. I believe you can find satisfying and reasonable answers for the doubts that you raise. But when you discover who he is, when you discover who Jesus is, that, that he's the God who created us, who created everything, and even though we turned our backs on him, he pursued us, he made a way for us, He paid the price for us, He loves you. He has grace for you. He has mercy for you. When you understand who He is and and what He offers and what He's done, everything changes. When you put your faith in Him, you trust Him, everything changes. Your your life is put on a solid foundation, on a solid rock. Your nature changes. You become a, a doer of God's Word. It's what i hope for us that's what i hope for this church that's what i hope for anyone who is on that winding path of discovering who jesus is today and what i especially hope for anyone who may be reading matthew 7 going is could that be me how would i answer that question why why would should i let you into heaven did my answer go straight to jesus or did it go straight to myself i hope that you would think through that i hope that you would take the time and the effort to discover who Jesus really is. Let me pray for us.